0: Now, nonetheless, to be a little bit of theory, but more <laughs> general, let's go on, because many interesting things can be said about uh, object A, precisely, we were ending there the status. A, because some of you also asked me to do a little bit of uh, melancholy, melancholia. Not, although I love the movie, not, of course, Lars from Dreher, melancholia, although, again, I was first skeptical because I don't always like Lars von Trier. For example, let me be frank, the movie, maybe we disagree, that I really hate is idiots. Although it's ambiguous, maybe, I mean, you saw idiots. What is your reading? Does he celebrate this, you know? Let's establish a group which lives freely. Or it's more ambiguous. I think it can be read that it's more ambiguous than Although, you remember, there is a poor, ordinary girl there who is broken. Okay, but what I want to say is that it's not... Okay, melancholy and so on. The crucial distinction here, and this is what some of you asked me already, I want to explain it, is the distinction between object of desire and what Lacan calls object A, which is the object-cause of desire. Now you will say, what's the bullshit? I like a girl. Or, Judy Butler was once mad at me because she always attacks me for being male chauvinist and caught in binary logic, no? And then, once when I explained this to her, I, I had a talk where she was, I went on and said, let's say my object is a girl or a boy or a dog or a cow or two <laughs> boys, like I told her, you so will not
1: accuse me of speciesism or binary <laughs> logic. But, uh, okay, so, seriously. Uh,
0: you will say, uh, wait a minute. Sorry, from my main chauvinist perspective. If I love and attracted to a girl, it's obviously she's the cause of my desire. Of course, no. Lacan's point is, object of desire is what you desire. But the cause of desire is that which makes you desire. It's not the same. Usually it's some phantasmatic detail. You know how this works in love. You know, love, and this is, and it's very complicated, because, okay, let's go through this standard stuff. You know that you never, when somebody asks you, why do you love that girl or that boy or whatever, you know that the moment you can answer this question, it's not true love. Because it's already what you would have called positive order of being properties, like love And this makes another nice paradox, about which Schelling wrote a lot. Uh, Love is a free act, in the sense of, my God, you freely choose whom to love. You you cannot be ordered to love. But it's more ambiguous, because at the same time, it's a free act. But as Schelling would have put it, an eternally past free act. You know what I mean? Phenomenologically, all of a sudden you discover, You are in love. But the decision is radically unconscious. You are never in a position to say, I want to fall in love, and sorry to be vulgar, don't take it personally. Like, I see three or four more women here, and then, you know, I made the list. That one has nice breasts, but not nice legs, that one, blah, blah. And then I make a kind of accountants, you know. Oh, she has five good points, only one bad point, so that's the one. Of course, the moment you do this, it's not love. But uh, the sense, uh, so what is so wonderful, and among other writers, imagine, even if I'm a primitive guy, I like him. He's refined, uh, Henry James. She is a master of describing these situations where you are already in love, but you don't yet know it, you know? And this is another thing that... I'm sorry, it's as if I'm trying now to praise women in this hypocritical, typically male chauvinist way. If you're a serious feminist, you must know it, that the moment a man praises some specific feminist intuition or whatever, that guy is for sure very Soviet, you know. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is that (laughs) I often notice through personal interactions that women are much better at discerning this. Like, I was up once with a friend, and a friend of mine, I didn't even know. He didn't know. And a woman, not sexual, just friend, was there and said, you already love that girl. The guy laughed, said no, nope, nope. and she said, "You just don't know it. Wait for a week, and so on." You know. <laughs> Another thing, and this would be what you calls subtraction. A nice example. I'm referring to your personal experience here. Uh, don't be afraid, nothing good, sexual, and so on. But uh, like there is a specific. I've written about this feminine gaze. Imagine. You talk to your wife or to a girlfriend, group of people, and you are, if you are a man, in this usual male chauvinist boasting, you know, you try to fascinate people, you talk. And, of course, men can also be aggressively sarcastic and so on. But correct me from your experience if I am wrong. In my experience, only a woman can do something which is so terrifying. She just looks at you, and that look, like, what are you bullshitting? You know, like, just a look with slight ironic smile, and you are naked, you are (laughs) disarmed. I haven't met a man who can do this. (laughs) Do do you know them? I have, yes. A man? Yeah, my husband. And I I can. Really, oh, yeah. really, and he is not like the he opposite of Larry Larry, Larry, of Larry, Larry of Larry or he's, what? He's You know that? Sorry. He's not aware of himself.
1: He's not aware of himself, but he knows. It comes and out. he's not
0: a transsexual. that right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he he he's a man. Sorry. Really, <laughs> he really can do this. Yeah. Like, but not. This is already male. This cynical sarcasm. None of that. Just this one gaze. You know, like and. As it were, he sees through you, you know, you are naked. Part of a brain that he's not aware of sees through me. Yeah. Ah, then at least pray to God that this will remain just a part, but <laughs> <laughs> spread to, to all the brain. No, but really, maybe, ah, yeah, we were talking about this yesterday, this can also interest you. Uh, it's linked to this, uh, subtraction, you know. I see, I wonder if you meant the same, Uh, to make it more actual, you know, Alain you, after getting burned with Maoism and so on, now advocates subtraction as a political category also, and I agree generally with him, but I have some minor problems, but he also helped. Namely, uh, his idea, very simply, is the following one. today, there is no chance to really do a revolution and so on. We are for some time within capitalist liberal state order. But he accepts, but you, as many others, and I don't accept it, I'm a Hegelian here, this old Marxist premise that uh, authentic politics has to happen at a distance towards state. That state is representation, state is, uh, well, non eventual by definition, and so on. So, then, the problem I get, first, I have a problem generally, it's for me too close to the politics of beautiful soul, of clean hands. Like, if you adopt this position, what then do you do in politics? Here I am a brutal Hegelian, unfortunately. You protest, you demand but you don't want to dirty your hands. I found this a too easy, hypocritical position, Well, you know this, if you read politics of subtraction in this way, we don't want to take power, we just want to bombard those in power with impossible demands, and so on, and so on, and although they are totally different theoretically, here I also had a conflict with Fred Jameson, who, without this but use precise terminology, has the same attitude. He told me all the left can do today is bombard those in power with impossible social democratic demands like universal health care, blah, blah. Of course, they cannot do it, but, you know, to slowly educate the people that welfare state cannot deliver, and so on, and so on. But I told him, but this appears to me a a way too easy solution. And you know where the conflict emerged, not between me and Badiou, but some of his followers. Some of them even attacked me. In Greece, you know, when Syriza was close to power, there was a whole strand which said, no, 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 don't do it, we are playing the game of those in power. I was much more tragically, heroically uh, oriented. I said, fuck it, even if you know you will fail, risk it, do it. Great power. I mean, if the state is here to stay, why not, if you can? Great power and, you know, you can do things. You can, up to a point, use the state against itself. I'm not talking here about, I have great problems with, with Chavez, you know. But, for example, they are much more sympathetic to me. I, uh, I met him, him, not Evo Morales, but Linera, the theoretician, no? And he was quite reasonable when I talked to him. He has no illusions, even privately, he will not tell this publicly, he has no illusions about Cuba and so on, no? But he told me, my God, we have a chance, we know, there are limits, but... even if you fail, you can do, you know, I... I, uh, I, don't, I dislike this position of bombarding some other with impossible demands, knowing well that the other cannot meet them, okay, that's good, but still, I know you're just, no, it's not a big, big theoretical counteract. <laughs> huh? So, uh, what I'm saying is that, okay, back to my due subtraction. Uh, you, ah, maybe, if you are from Mexico you know am I right or not? What is happening now with, uh, with Zapatista? Because my problem is that they were a pure model, even, but you refer to them of politics of subtraction. Yeah. You just withdraw from state, you establish there a free territory, which incidentally, and I love for this, friends who have links with them and who were there told me, I love this pragmatic spirit, you know, they have their region there, and you have all this leftist. Upper leftist class tourism, no? Leftists come there to show solidarity and to have a good time. There is a problem. In their region, Zapatista, no alcohol, no sex, no prostitution. But fuck it, then you lose progressive tourists, no? So they told me, you sit there, but left Zapatistas organized a bus service to the nearest city in normal Mexico, where you get prostitution and so on, all that. I love laugh. it. <laughs> but what I want to say is that, here I'm asking you if you know, was it really like that? It was nice, but at a certain point, when that subcomandante Marcos assumed that role of just, you know, we just want to be the voice of truth, blah, blah, uh, this kind of a moral authority, Basically, didn't they become more or less acceptable? You know, like politicians almost started to like them. Yeah, we need someone to tell us the truth. And so, no wonder some of my more radical friends now refer to Subcomandante Marcos. I love this evil as Subcomediante Marcos. You know, like everybody loves him now, you know, great guy who tells the truth and so on. But, you know, uh, something. Like, uh, there is... Okay, I'll put it like this. Uh, uh, This is... I know that with Alem, but you, that this subtraction in this sense is not subtraction at its most radical. The metaphor that I used, and he loved it, once when we debated this, of subtraction is... You know, when you have this... uh, uh, How do you call it? When you put cards and you do this... Fragile house of house of cards. You know, then the trick is if you we play this game sometimes. If you pull out, if you subtract the right card, they all fall down. You know, this would be for me the true radical subtraction, not just as but you unfortunately sometimes sounds as we have to establish our own free space, liberated zone outside. Well, you play a very dangerous game here because an intelligent regime not only allows but even supports such <coughs> free zones. They are, you know, for me, you know where But you is much closer to authentic subtraction? When he understands subtraction as reduction to a minimal difference, as it were, no? <coughs> subtraction is you, almost subtraction is, as he put it, once nicely, subtraction is something like "redact." What he calls in his logic of the works, and this theory is nice, uh, Le point, the point, you know, for example, we are in a tense political situation and we can bullshit up and down at the level of reasons, you know, shall we do this, maybe, maybe not, blah, blah, blah. But then at a certain point, <coughs> And the art of authentic politics for me is to identify that point. At a certain point, you are cornered. And you can say, okay, okay, we can endlessly debate do this or not, but you have to decide a simple yes or no. And this is for me a much better example of subtraction. Subtraction in the sense of, as Badiou puts it, reduction to the point. Like if you are in a proto-revolutionary situation, Okay, cut the bullshit. Do we take power or not? Do we risk him or not? But it Sa- the, with the Zapatistas, they, they fell into a... I mean, they, they
1: appeal to the, to the um, uh, indigenous cosmovision, which is a subtraction by itself, in a way, because it's like... An yeah, but here I have to yeah big problem. Because I know Morales is doing
0: yeah. the same, no? And this is why then, after I gave a talk there, I know everything from Uh, from Linera, Morales, Evo, didn't want to receive me. You know why? Because I couldn't resist attacking him. You know, about two years ago, Evo Morales published a letter to world leaders, you know, about ecology, no? Claiming that its horror capitalism ruined, killed Mother Earth. You can imagine what was my comment. At least one good thing that capitalism did <laughs> you know. And very seriously. No, no, no. This, If you want to follow this in some of my books, I really think that this Mother Earth mythology is the greatest obstacle to do serious ecology. Because the situation is much more tragic. Uh, the first thing to do, and we have to take this lesson from uh, really good radical Darwinian biologists, and so on. You know, we have totally, to totally abandon, I think, this maternal approach of human hubris. You know, Earth is a Gaia living mother in balance, and we, through our human hubris, we raped Mother Earth. Too much exploitation, now we have to pay the price, and so on, and so on. I think that the first lesson to take is that there is no Mother Earth, this is why I like this formula, for which I was of course attacked, that the first rule of really radical ecology is there is no nature. Not not in the stupid sense of some stupid subjective idealism, you know, there is no reality, we are just dreaming, but there is no nature in the sense in which we understand nature, as some kind of a natural harmonious balance and so on. No? Uh, uh, you know, this is why it's so nice to read. He was really great. You know that great progressive Darwinist, privately he was a leftist, he was really a genius, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. He's, it's a Wonderful Life. No, it's not the movie. It's a title, of course, based of his best book, where he shows the... It's about, how is it called, Burgess? Burgess Shane or what? Some uh, fossil big rock, in which it is frozen a certain point of oscillation in evolution, where we learn it might have taken a totally different orientation, where I don't know fishes would become intelligent, totally different, and so on. And his point is this, there is no progress in nature. Nature is totally chaotic and improvises with catastrophes all the time. And again, I repeat this all the time. Uh, to to cure you of the dreams of Mother Nature, think about oil. We live of oil reserves. Are we even aware what kind of mega ecological catastrophes had to happen in prehistory, before we were here to screw it up without subjectivity, for us to have oil reserves? That's nature. Nature is already artificial. Nature is not an order. Nature is not balanced order that we then humans through our hubris ruined or whatever. And this does not mean, okay, it's already we don't have to worry. No, the situation is even worse one. Of course, we can measure and we should how with our exploitation we can ruin it, global warming, blah blah. But we should always be aware that we have nowhere to return. You know what I mean? There is no natural balance, Mother Earth, whatever, where we can return. This is why, as I uh, as I do, uh, in my, maybe you know the line of thought, in my regular attacks on this kind of Mother Earth ecology, I especially like to attack a pure case of ideology, so-called uh, 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 mode of life, or how do they call it? way-of-life ecology, which, you know, is kind of a false <clears throat> personification, you know. Did you recycle the coke can? Did you put newspaper? Fr- of course, I'm doing it, it's good to do it, but let's be serious. <laughs> this is not the solution. This is a clear case of everyday life ideology. They make you do this so that you feel good. You know, it's even, you must know it, but I like to repeat it, it's so nasty, because it happened four or five times that somebody started to cry, you are ruining my life, attacked me when I took this example. Organic farming. Okay, it's good, but do you really believe in it? Maybe, maybe not. I have always this paranoiac suspicion that, you know, in the store you have these beautiful genetically modified apples which are horror. You know, they change the genes so that they don't rot. And I discovered this horror once I went on a trip from my home and I forgot there three of these genetically modified perfect apples. It was summer, hot. I returned three weeks later, the apples were still <laughs> absolutely, not, you know, in heat. Can you imagine what? Okay, and but makes then... Not organic? Sorry? And that makes <coughs> Uh, no, my cynicism is this one. Uh, now, this will be very evil, it's probably not true, but I always have, this will be evil, I'm sorry, this suspicion that when you see these perfect organic apples and those half-rotten apples, which costs three times, ta- two times more, I always have a suspicion that they pick out the nice apples and sell them cheap, then they the remaining rotten apples, they say, why don't we sell them as organic, <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> No, I know, I'm not too evil now. All I'm saying is immediately something different. Look, because we are all cynical like that, who trust it? I'm saying something different. I'm saying... First, I'm the first one to be fully aware of the... what we popularly call from the Iraq onwards uh, collateral damage, like how how difficult genetic... Ma- I mean, the problem with genetic manipulations is, you know, nature is dense, non-transparent. And you change this, you never know what... Uh, like, a nice, simple example of this. When I was very young, <coughs> you only if you are very old, you remember him. Thor Heyerdahl, it was a Norwegian explorer who wanted to prove he made Contiki, uh, how do you call it, and I think he crossed, was it from, America, from Asia to America, whatever, to prove how in prehistory it was able to do it. Then, to prove that from Africa it was also possible to go to Latin America, he tried to repeat the same. And this was relatively late, I think late, 70, late, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And... His raft boat, built in the Egyptian style, fell apart, it was tragedy, just 10 miles in front of Latin American coast. But then, you know what he discovered? You know, this typical Egyptian, okay, we know them, fucking typical, from drawings, they have a mask, how you call it, and then a rope which is holding its front. <coughs> he thought this is pure aesthetic, some stupid ritual, and skipped that rope. And then he discovered that what he thought an unimportant, just aesthetic supplement, was really absolutely crucial to hold the entire ship together. You know, that's the problem with, we don't know. For example, you know, I spoke with, my God, you know here, where is the evil, evil, all women are evil, the the genetic (laughs) thing. Ah, you see how? This is too, too confusing. You are here, you are there. That's easy. No, isn't it that if you look at the genome and so on, isn't it that there are so many redoubled elements where people are not quite sure? The basic reading is that just to make it safe, you know, nature is like a teacher who quite right rightly suspects that nature is stupid, I mean and says, let's let's state it two, three times so that so that the body will get it. But isn't it still a little bit more ambiguous in the sense that some things which, from our knowledge now, appear superficial, it's still open what are the possible functions, I think, and so on, you know. So this is the problem. What I'm saying is another thing, that imagine yourself buying those disgusting (laughs) rocky organic apples. What I'm saying is something very precise. It's that uh, we are more or less in our daily life cynical. Maybe you believe it, maybe not, you doubt. Maybe you are right, maybe not. I'm not such a pessimist. I'm sorry if I appear just making fun of honest organic farmers. What I'm saying is this, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you and me, ordinary customers. Why do you buy? I claim, and I put as a wager, Pascal wager, <laughs> that it's more ideology. You basically tell to yourself, who knows? it's maybe true, maybe not. But it makes me feel at least I feel good. At least I will do something for Mother Nature. I'm a member of a nice. You don't agree? I don't agree at all. Really? I don't want in Sorry? I don't want pesticides
1: and cancer. And sure, I feel good. Yeah, I mean, it's the front line of
0: healthcare, you have it. I mean... Okay, maybe if you know it, but I still, favorite. and I'm not bluffing, I'm spo- <laughs> I spoke with someone who did it, I'm not asking about what is true or not.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm asking about why the majority people do it. I claim, and from the reaction to this, like, once when I was developing this line, a lady stood up, it was an Italian chest, but you are ruining all my life, but all my life is dedicated to this. It's so clear that, no, I, I, I really think that, that, uh, that uh, how should I put it, that this ideological moment of, I'm doing something, is pretty crucial, and I claim it's the same with recycling. There, okay, let's take recycling, because there, there is no doubt it's good to recycle. Nobody says it's not. What I'm saying is that, recycling is so much propagated, to make it easy for you. It's a wonderful ecological operation. First, it makes guilty each of us, so you don't ask the big questions, you know. Because when you raise the big anti-capitalist questions, they tell you, oh, wait a minute, but what about you? Are you aware that you are also guilty with your daily life, blah, blah? Are you doing it or not? And so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that uh, There is something of a superstition in the sense that I'm not sure, but again, it makes you feel good. good. I'm doing something for Mother Earth and so on and so on. Maybe we disagree here, but I do think that uh, this uh, ideology of solidarity, which is again absolutely crucial for today's capitalism. You cannot even imagine today's capitalism without charity, human care, and so on, and so on. Why? Because I claim it has a crucial ideological function of depoliticizing the situation. You know? Yeah, immediately. I Okay, go now, please. we Yeah, okay the truth example. Actually. Yeah. If you take into account that um, the, this actually,
1: that the reason you're paying more money is because you're afraid of cancer. Because?
0: You're afraid of cancer. Ah, that would be, yeah. But even these tears are but totally no, because ideologically, because yes. Yeah, yeah. True, true. true. I agree with it. this, true. And although I don't like so much Woody Allen, but uh, he has in one of his late movies, I think, a wonderful line. He you says. Sorry? The yeah, 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 yeah. What I want to say is that Woody Allen says that once, decades ago, the big question was, does she love me or not? Yes or no? Now the big question is, referring to that after test, is it positive or negative? <laughs> the test. Sorry. Okay. Let I will go on but... Well, I don't know if you're buying
1: health. I agree that nature is random. You know, you're not going to get rid of cancer by eating an organic apple. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, uh, but yeah, but he's right. But all the propaganda for organic. That's that's heavy.
0: So is but that's okay. what I'm saying, just that it's low that that I'm you want thinking to go. about the you yeah. moment. Okay, But let me give. Okay. So, I'm sorry, please finish. I talked too much. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I'm just saying the ideological moment that I'm thinking about is the cost comparison. Who cares if you spend more money on it? Um, I'm not again. here. I'm more
0: cynical. Why yeah. I claim that everything comes the very coming. act, fact that you the spend more money, money makes is. you feel good. You see, I'm generous, I did something for nature, and so on. You know, that's the most intelligent market strategy when you're not trying to sell it cheap. You raise the price. No, this you, is the it's truth. It's a strategy. It's you have to keep
1: an organic farm, free pesticides for seven years before it can be classified as organic. There's all these reasons
0: why it costs but I agree, my God, I'm sorry that I took this path of <laughs> organic farming, I have nothing against it. Yeah. So, I will give you another aren't example you of ideology, of pure ideology, smoking. <laughs> yes, it's true. But did you notice a strange thing which demonstrates how this uh, focusing on smoking is ideologically overdetermined? Did you notice, oh, that's my experience in the United States, the same left liberal, at least academic intellectuals, who are against smoking, I mean, like, I was shocked once, I can even tell you the name, Ken Ranka. UCLA. Once I was with my Slovene friends there, and, not me, but the other two Slovene friends, Vladimir and are chain smokers. So they said, can we smoke? They told him, we know you don't smoke, but we can step out on the garden. He says, no, garden is part of the house. (laughs) They then said, but we can go out on the street to smoke. He said, no, no, (laughs) uh, uh, neighbors will see you and they will say what kind of friends am I going to here and so on (laughs) and so on. Okay, okay. What I'm saying is that then, after this debate was over, he started to distribute to finish the evening hard drugs. And he didn't see like, I mean, whatever hard drugs are, not marijuana, fuck it, they are more dangerous than a cigarette, you know. And it's a good question. Why? And this is a nice proof of how it's not true that our societies are consumerists. No, if by consumerism you mean this radical, let's go to the end. There are one or two types of consumerism, for example, which is why smoking is so disturbing, you know? Like, uh, uh, because... Uh, let me tell you another example, maybe you know it. You know, you have now these e- so-called e-cigarettes, e- you know? Where you just inhale... Uh, what's the bullshit? <laughs> Nicotine, yeah, and uh, it hurts no one. But uh, although some companies or even planes promote it, I was told by my friends who use it, that most of them don't like it for you to smoke. Like a friend of mine, I can tell you the name, Eva Gilmer, the boss for theory at Surkamp Verlag, the big German company, she told me she has this one and on a flight she was asked not to use it, and by the, the flight attendant. And she countered, why not? It's absolutely not even the nature of passive smoking you know what was a very interesting theoretical answer? No, the policy of our airline is that you display in this way an addiction in an indecent way. And this is bad influence. I mean, it's quite uh, it's it's, a. Censorship. Sorry? It's, it's essentially a censorship because it's about the message, it's not about the app. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she was. And, but again, did you also notice how smoking, how it progressed. First, it was just a small message. Smoke, uh, smoking may damage your health. Then the letters get larger, then, then they got more brutal, like it's no longer just smoking, maker. it's like smoking kills, <coughs> smoking renders you impotent and so on. <coughs> I love Greeks, the crazy guy. Maybe you know it. Do you know that? The progressive smoking leftist already have an answer to this, a nice joke. A guy goes to uh, uh, traffic to buy cigarettes and said, okay, give me that one, whatever, name it, Marlboro. And he gets it and he says that that uh, Marlboro causes, smoking causes cancer. No? He said, no, I don't like cancer, give me another one. <laughs> <laughs> he says, smoking causes heart disease. He said no, see, and then they gave me the, they gave him the third one, smoking causes impotence and he says, No, no, then give me cancer. <laughs> 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 to, to impotence, you know? Because and then finally in some countries was in Brazil also, in some in Europe, you get you now these terrifying photos, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like open lungs or whatever. I mean again, to avoid any misunderstanding, I don't smoke. And I'm totally for, you know, I like this uh, Hollywood... Uh, one was with, I think... Uh, who is the, uh, that guy? Uh, the Australian actor. Uh, uh, informer. Al Pacino and my brother. Absolutely. Bro- absolutely. Yeah, you remember when he sees the... informer. No, sorry? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm all for this. I'm not saying... All I'm saying is, there is something absolutely suspicious in this focus on smoking, because the attitude today is, and this is the other side of our consumerist permissivity, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but in a censored, moderate, healthy form. Like, you know, this old joke that I repeat all the time, like Coke, yes, but Diet Coke, uh, 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 chocolate without sugar, and you go on sausage without fat. Again, the problem is that they didn't yet manage to do cigarettes without nicotine, you know. And I claim that even sex is moving in this direction. This is where I stopped, I lost my thread two days ago when I went a little bit into this, uh, how love is, love or passionate attachment is more and more prohibited uh, today. Didn't I already told you, I'm sorry here, if I repeat myself, one of my most, uh, most desperate uh, Experiences uh, depressive. In an airline journal, you know how I read a text praising sex, but how in this politically correct way? You know, you should make love as often as possible because it's good for your health. It's better than exercise. It strengthens your muscles. It's good for the heart rhythm. And that they are so obscene that at the end, even they advocate deep kissing. War. Before Iraq war, this was the standard joke. You know when Americans changed uh, French fries to freedom fries, you know? My friends in the United States immediately made a joke like, it's not uh, like, if I want
1: some of you, I will not be personal, to give you a French kiss, I will say, freedom kiss. <laughs> kiss no. uh, yet yeah, they praise this deep French kiss. The idea is that it
0: strengthens the muscles here, so the, out the saliva, you know, drip out, and so on. You know, uh, this, this is the truth of consumerism. Consumerism is not this shop till you drop. It's always economy. The formula of You know who are true consumerists? This is usually immediately quoted as making making fun of them, but I like it. This vulgar Russian nouveau riche oligarchs. You know this one of the nice, it's very simple, brutal joke, not even funny, but the tendency is the right one. This joke mocks their vulgarity, how the point is just to spend money, no? One of them said, look, I have this watch, it costed me $10,000, $10,000, I bought it in that store. And the other guy told him, you are so stupid, in the nearby store you can get it for $15,000. <laughs> the, the point is, that this is the true consumerism. But no, we you know what's the logic of our consumerism? It's always this economy, like, buy two and get one for free. And this is my eternal temptation, immediately. To you. you remember when you buy, for example, a typical... Uh, How do you call it? Toothpaste, you know? How sometimes it's directly marked like the top third is in another color, you get this for free. Mm -hmm. And my temptation is always to say, can I get (laughs) (laughs) this? You can, sorry. The point is that it's selling. it's working. And the reason it's
1: working is because they play with our emotions and our feelings. Yeah, but I agree. And they know that people are depressed, that people are looking for pleasure, Mm -hmm to find some way mm. to make I agree with you. Just I
0: think things are here complex in the sense but what of to ask, what? Yes, yes. yes. Use our thinking yeah,
1: to yeah. yeah. Not but now,
0: but first, no. First, here I'm a little bit more of a pessimist. I think that this—it's not as simple as that. Don't underestimate most of the people. I claim the mystery is precisely what I was telling about everyday superstitions. You know it that it's not true or whatever, but you still do it, you still believe it at some level. I'm more and more convinced that this fetishist formula, you know, je sais bien, mais comme I know very well, but it's crucial in everyday ideology. I don't think, like, people are not stupid. Of course they know I am manipulated, but still you allow, you don't think. I disagree. Really? I teach media literacy. Yes. I tell my students, how many
1: hours a day do you Media, yeah. seven, eight, ten yeah. hours. They have no idea who owns it, how
0: much money goes into it, what, how they're being manipulated. And these are 18, 25 euros. I they see, have no of idea. course. no I agree here. What I'm only saying is that, <laughs> sorry, I was at a more elementary level. When you go to a supermarket and see there one third is free, mm-hmm. you absolutely know, because we are. Cynicist in daily lives. Like, what's the trick? It's, you automatically assume they do this to earn more money, to rip you off even more. Mm-hmm. Nobody even thinks, oh, how good is this company? It is, you know what I mean? I was just referring to this. Now, you absolutely know its manipulation. Well, in the United States, we have such an individualistic society that people are so, 60% of antidepressants, they're looking for pleasure happiness, and when they are watching um, BMW being advertised, and next to it is a beautiful model, they think, oh, if I drive my car, I'm going to have the model next to it that comes with it. I know, but I will tell you something else which will be an argument for me. (laughs) I read an article, which, my God, I hope it's true, because it's a wonderful message, that uh, they did a correlation between, well, your social status, and uh, not just rich, but also intellectual and so on, and use of antidepressants. The more you are educated and cultured, that is to say, the more you should know it's a manipulation, the more you use them. You know what I mean? That's what, uh, like, uh, precisely those who should have known how it is. Like, it is so crazy, I almost established A rule. You know which structure of belief I'm referring to here. When I was young, you remember those stupid times, Gagarin, the first Soviet uh, cosmonauts. There was a wonderful Soviet joke, uh, which indicates what I want to say. It's that Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, is first received by Nikita Khrushchev, (coughs) the Soviet leader, and he tells him in private, in the office in Kremlin, you know, I must tell you something, Comrade Khrushchev, horrible. I was up there and I saw angels, there is God up there. And Khrushchev tells him, I know, I know, just don't tell it this way. (laughs) Then he is received by Pope in Rome. Gagarin tells him, you know, I must tell you something, sorry, I was up there in the sky. There is no paradise, there is no God. And Pope tells him, I know, I know, (laughs) don't tell it around. I mean, this is effectively, the structure, I claim, of of belief. So, the shock I experienced. I have, I know some, they even admitted in books, some great brain scientists, Uh, and not so much them as more, who is that popular Damasio. Sorry? No, 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 Damasio, I don't like it. I will tell you why. She wants to appear, like, instead of simply saying, when you hear a sound, this happens to your ear, this is his typical procedure from his one of his books. He says, yesterday evening I had a guest, that famous Portuguese piano player woman, and she played a melody, and you know, I hate this. Like, he wants to know that he is a man of... But, uh, no, another one, my God, who did that, the man who?
1: Oliver Sark.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I like it so much, he should know, brain scientist, but he's all the time going to a psychoanalyst even if it's literally the same structure as here. And on the other hand, I know, starting with, and she will tell me this, like my good friend, uh, she is here, Avital Ronay. Deconstruction is everything Freudian dismissing. Yeah, she takes all the pills and it's... You know, let me, she practices exactly the opposite. And I like this symmetry, how, maybe only being a brain scientist can really do analysis and <laughs> vice versa, no. You really believe secretly in brain sciences and then... Because I noticed, you know, that this is true because many my Freudian friends who are writing books, I remember how they tell me this traumatic. they told me, you know, a friend of mine was in analysis and, you know, I was so shocked, it really worked, you know, like, people who spend their life propagating psychoanalysis are totally shocked when they learn that it even works so <laughs> a little bit, you know. No, 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 wait a minute. I don't want to exaggerate, you know what I mean, no? All I'm saying, the point I'm trying to make, and I hope we agree here, it's just that the notion of belief, precisely, not in some theoretical sense, but What does it mean to believe and so on in everyday life? It's a complex notion. It's never simply a question of do you believe, don't you believe, you know. For example, this is why I always refer with such a pleasure to my communist youth where I got the lesson. Why? Because at least till mid-seventies ex-Yugoslavia was a totally cynical regime, by cynical I don't mean more people <coughs> than others. By cynical, I mean not only that, those in power, most of them didn't believe in their own ideology, the Yugoslav ideology, self-management, so, you know, all Yugoslav narcissism was, we are not like the other Soviet East bloc. They are Stalinist state socialism, with us it's direct democracy, self-management. Okay. It wasn't only that you didn't have to believe. It took me a long time to discover this. You have to not believe. Like, it's a tragic story, maybe you know it, but let me repeat. I had, this was mid-70s, two friends who worked at the Cultural Commission of a Central Committee. They lost their job. Why? They really believed in official ideology and it was immediately perceived by those in power as a threat. The idea was a very simple one. I spoke with one of the people who purged them. If you take it seriously, it's one step towards this, because then you will soon see that it doesn't... And didn't I tell you, I must repeat it, you maybe you know it, my ultra-experience. Slovenia, we are lucky, was a small country, two million, no? So for us, General Secretary of the party is not a big guy up there whom you see on screen. It's an ordinary jerk. You can even meet him on the street, even if they wanted to play being popular without a bodyguard. So, okay. I was once, as a young guy, at, at a meeting they convoked us students where there was a speech by General Secretary at the point of the Communist Party. No? And this guy made the usual point to us students. Learn Marxism read both volumes of Capital of Marx and always follow the fourth thesis on Feuerbach. Not only interpret the world, but, no? And then I couldn't resist it. I After the talk, I approached him and told him, comrade secretary, you know, I advise you if you give this speech at some further point so that people will not laugh at you like there are three volumes of Capital yeah. <laughs> and it's thesis 11, my god I got the answer of my lifetime, which was privately, of course. I know this, but that was my point. I don't care. Well, it's beautiful. I mean, that's how it functions, theology. You know, like I like this paradox that you actively, it's not only you know that they don't care if you believe or not, you actively have to non-believe. And I claim it's the same with every nationalism in a way. Like, especially I read with Orwell a nice text on British aristocratic upper-class nationalism. And he develops very nice how the two being British includes making cynical remarks fun of your identity. It's an absolute... Condition, of course. Then, where well, things are for the real, blah blah blah. But okay, uh, let me go again. All I'm saying is that the, <coughs> I, the belief is a very thinic, uh, mystical, in, mystical. I mean, enigmatic thing. Let me give you another example. I was a couple of years ago in Israel, and I spoke with a, an Israeli psychiatrist who is specialized in studying this suicide. Bombers, no? Okay, I didn't like too much. It's not exactly my political orientation. (laughs) I mean, the Israel. But he told me something interesting. He told me that he made interviews with many suicide bombers who just failed bombing. And the distinct impression he got is that it's not what you think, that you know, all that primitive depiction, you know. They thought, oh, in a couple of seconds I will be in paradise with 70 virgins and so on, which incidentally every honest Muslim will tell you, this is a mistranslation. The work, the, the term used for virgins is some term which is used for the best, how do you call it? Sour dry raisins, the dry, how do you call it? you dry the drink? No, no, raisins. Raisins, raisins. 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 Yeah, yeah, raisins. You like dried balls of whatever, great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, that the expression is this, and you have to take into account that to offer this to a guest, this best quality raisins, was the big sign of hospitality. So, Quran is here quite a decent text, no? It's just like, it only means you will be received well, no? And then it's a later uh, mystery, you know, which is another of speaking about belief of how difficult things are to accept. You know, my favorite guys, I mentioned them, assassins, those, Alamut. You know this myth that they, uh, the way they were manipulated is they were dragged by their leader and then awakened with naked girls, screwing them, and then reawakened so that they thought they were in paradise. And then they were ready to kill, die, to go back there. There's only one problem with this story. If you know more, tell me. i read a lot about, uh, about these books on assassins. The first time this story is reported is 14th century Western sources. It's absolutely sure, and you know why? It's clear that the Western guys who accompanied the Crusaders couldn't believe, it was too shattering for them, how someone can be so heroic to, without a problem... So they invented, projected their own dream into it, they invented it. And this is, I didn't lose my thread, back to Lacan. This is how one should understand this Lacan's thesis desire is the desire of the other, you know, like, what they identified as this exotic oriental desire, you know, oh, they're ready to kill themselves, they're so stupid, they believe in, no, it was their own desire. I'm sorry if I repeat myself, it's in my first book that I report another story, which is the best one that I know, I'm sorry if you know it, for what does it mean, this mediation of desire, desire of desire of the other, I'm sorry if you know it. It's an old anthropological myth, which is beautiful. In mid 19th century, an anthropological expedition went to some of those really dark. I think is how do you pronounce it? Not New Zealand, New Guinea. Um, oh, my New Guinea. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, in deep in jungle, there was a rumor that there is there in the middle some tribe, very primitive, where they put death masks and dance a horrible dance of death. That was the rumor. So, they wanted, so, okay, they came to that tribe in the evening, tired, they explained to them what they want, can you please dance the dance for us, and then it was evening, they went to sleep, in the morning they awakened, and the, the natives, the tribe members, really performed exactly the dance that they expected. Okay, they returned to Haha civilization, this guy, is satisfied, you see, wrote an article on primitive passions offered. Unfortunately, 20 years later, another expedition went to that tribe. And they did their job more properly. They learned properly the language and asked them what really happened with that. And you can guess what happened, this beautiful story. The natives, somehow, they just tried to be polite and somehow ho- they got it that these guys want some horrible dance. They were polite people, so for the whole night they were working, inventing this dance, just to be good good hosts, you know. So what they thought that they discovered, Ooh, this, it was literally their own desire to the other. Sorry. Yeah, I think, I think spoke about that. They spoke about Sorry, who? Goffman. Ah, yeah, that guy, yeah, yeah. That staged ethnicity stage ethnicity and stage
1: folklore, and how, uh, yeah. and how when you go to a particular country, um, did you have this, uh, this, uh, this dance or this, uh, this ritual that you made that the anthropologists and people from the outside feel like uh, this, is the, this is representative of the people's culture, but in actuality, it's a stage, and it's a very small portion, it's absolutely non representative.
0: Yeah, but I have a but here, you know, which one? Nonetheless, the miracle is that. Even if it's artificial, it can, can, as it were, become authentic. You know, for example, when I was in Argentina, I read a very good history of where they claimed that, you know, you have a certain Argentinian self-image, you know, gaucho, endless, pampas, blah, blah. You know how this emerged? Okay, they were doing this. In earliest, early 19th century, it was fashionable later, even Darwin went there, many Western, English and so on, travelers went there and wrote their impressions, memoirs of Argentina. And they created this myth. You know, Argentina. Papa. But what I like so much is that, and it doesn't make it any less authentic that, Argentinians simply accept this, the way they were, and I think, that this is every national identity has a little bit of this. You always imagine, when you want to idealize your nation, how you are viewed by the other. For example, four weeks ago, I saw this. That's why I love them. It. It's an ultimate nightmare, a bad road. You know, if you go to demilitarized zone in Korea, there is at one point where you can see a North Korean city relatively close. And, you know, it's the usual rip-off. You put in coins with a... Okay. But the beauty is this. North Koreans know it. So, that city only... You know, otherwise, it's hunger, horror. They painted freshly all the houses, but only the southern side. They gave people better dresses, but people are obliged there to take walks every evening. They, They... This city... Otherwise, they have all the time cuts of electricity. This city gets enough electricity. You know, and they claim to be so autonomous. It's all how they worry. State, it's always, it's always like this. And let me tell you another experience. This is my own, not some tribe. I love them. I think this is authentic. Not, uh, no, sorry. Again, in, uh, I was in New Zealand. They do deal a lot with authentic popular art. My God, if he were to be a woman, I would have married him. I spoke with their art agent and he told me how this really works. He goes regularly to New York to see what are the new trends. And then he comes back and gives hints to these totally authentic artists, you know, what kind of paintings would sell better. So this Authentic folkloric art, art, art is again and again reinvented with the view to what we'll sell on... And I claim, I hope you got my point, I claim that this is much more... Sorry, yes. Oh, uh, even, uh, first, you know that the word slave comes from not speaking in public, but in an <laughs> infinite mercy, I give you mercy. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy describes a similar mechanism. Oh I love him. Yeah. But 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 his position stems from René Girard's whole yeah, yeah. thing. Which maybe can be described better with desire is a desire of the small other. Because it's all about this mirrored yes, thing and yeah, how yeah, yeah, from yeah. that you get this yes, self-fulfilling. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Where where is your where do, do you break uh, with him? I wanted to go later. And how me. does that yeah.
1: how does your examples differ from simple uh, desire of the small other? Since uh, perfect. I wanted to go, I promise you. No, just to conclude
0: conclude this line, uh, New Zealand and so on. I hope I didn't yet repeat this story here because it's the best. Why? I think, without kidding, that uh, there is nothing non-authentic about this. That on the contrary, this idea of original folkloric native art, non-influenced, but this is a Western racist idea. Did you see that very interesting... I really mean it because, you know, I don't have problems with political correctness. Like, you know, once I was in an American campus and I said, I want to go to a movie, no? And they told me, oh, wonderful professor, we have a festival of South Korean or bullshit Romanian movies. (laughs) I said, fuck you, I want the multiplex. (laughs) Screw your art. I don't have problems with this. But nonetheless, even I violate my principles. So, this was a native movie, which is, did you see the Inuit, politically correct for (laughs) Eskimos, a a movie, uh, uh, Fast Runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know uh, what I liked about it? I even met the guys, although the main guy, the actor, unfortunately died of cancer immediately afterwards. uh, 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 They gave me complete material, books, and at some point the director gave an ingenious answer. Uh, Western journalists who wanted to celebrate the film told them, uh, looked into the original myth, because this film restages an old Inuit myth of a family conflict, blah blah. But the point is this one. In the original myth, the ending is much more tragic. Basically, they all kill each other. Here, as you know, they just throw out the two bad guys, and then unity is reconstituted, and so on, not bad, okay. So, uh, he accused them, the journalists, the movie makers, of, uh, again, uh, uh, again, making a compromise with commercial tastes, like betray, like commercial, no, no, why didn't you stick to the original meat? Why did you do this cheap commercial move? And he got a wonderful answer from the director, who says, you don't get it. It's our our tradition is precisely this constant retelling and changing to fit it the ongoing circumstances. <laughs> this is how their tradition works. Their tradition is that there are new circumstances you change
1: the story and so on.
0: <laughs> the most non-traditional thing for them is this European obsession, you know, with, uh, with oh, the authentic version. This is why, Even when we are dealing with great myths of Europe, like Antigone. Don't be afraid. I know I already stole the jokes about three verses. but I want to tell you something else. Do you know that Sophocles' Antigone, which we perceive as the authentic one, do you know that Sophocles' Antigone is a later brutal rewriting of the original myth, or folk narrative, whatever it was, which, if I tell it to you, you would have said, this is vulgar. You know what happens, do you know, in original Antigone story? Uh, Antigone doesn't die. He, it's much more melodramatic, he escapes with, what's uh, Creon's son, Haimon, She escapes with him to another city where they live. It's more like Count Monte Cristo, where they live happily for 20 years, breed a son, and then 20 years later, this son comes back to make, on behalf of his parents, revenge against Creon, and then the story gets totally crazy because Creon has another daughter and this son now falls in love with... <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I were to tell you the original, authentic Antigone myth, you would have thought, oh, this is some stupid Hollywood cheap melo- <laughs> melodrama, you know. So, again, uh, 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 yes, we got into this mess. Let me return to that love and so on. Uh, where we all started. What is prohibited today? Access and so on. I really think, and here we come more to theory. Lacan introduced a weird notion in his around 1972-3, I think. Lathouse, It's a total neologism supposed to sound like a Greek word. L a t h o u s e not uh, good. This is basically his term for this uh, uh, sex toys, like the idea is that uh, we more and more re- rely in our pleasures on these consumerist objects and so on, so that you don't even, you don't need a partner, you just do it with a technical supplement. And I I saw one, which I found wonderful. I'm tempted to use it, it's so practical. You know, you buy a It looks from outside like a (coughs) big battery, so that you are not embarrassed, you know. But you take the top off, and it's the vaginal opening. And then it's wonderful. It has battery electricity, and first you can regulate it. You can buy, so that you stick it on the top, no, plastic form of three, you can have vagina hairless, vagina with hair, it looks like anus, and it looks like mouth, whatever you want to put on, then you can electrically regulate how tightly it squeezes you, and how how quickly it shakes. At my year 63, I'm saying, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> time to go through the mess with real women. <laughs> but, uh, okay, that's what Lacan meant, and uh, Lacan openly says that uh, this, that the problem today with the result of this last changes is that with what we mentioned as decline of paternal authority, blah, blah. You know, Lacan says something very precise on the very last page of seminary level. He says that a successful moderately sexual relationship can only be done under the name, as a, under the shadow of the name of the father, blah, blah. So what do I want to tell you with this? Uh, where is here? Uh, where did it, uh, look uh, I'm sorry to know the story, but uh, 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 Darian Leder, the nice British, Lacanian uh, intelligent guy, told me a wonderful story from his own clinical practice. And here you can see it's a very simple story, that he was a good Freudian. But, like, uh, he had a patient who reported to him uh, a sleep of dog. This patient told him that, days, a couple of days before this session, he invited a lady to a hotel, first to eat with her, and then of course up into a room. No? But then he made a slip. When he entered the restaurant, instead of saying a table for two, please, he said to the waiter a bed for two, please. No? Now ah, ah, Now comes the point. Here the genius. How to interpret this? Uh, you would have thought, oh, clear Freudian sleep. He wanted to be polite, eat, but his mind was already up there. Ah, he is a genius, Darian Leder. He says, no, it's the exact opposite. Uh, he was this postmodern solipsistic narcissist that this remark, bad for two please, was a kind of a, what he was afraid of. Is dead. He will enjoy eating there so much that he will forget about the heavy birthday. So it was just a. It was kind of a censorship <laughs> reminder, you know. This is just a thought.ly Don't enjoy this too much. Remember, the real work happens later. And isn't this often the tragic experience? I must tell you, it happened to me. With my first girlfriend, it was a tragic story when I was young. How, what you think is just an instrument to get to a real thing. You start to enjoy it so much that you forget that. I remember I had a crush on a girl, and to get her, she liked her father. I thought, oh, one should be polite to her father, so it was a ritual. When I came for a date with her, first I talked with her father and so on and so on. Then slowly she got jealous and she exploded, and you know, I was starting to enjoy conversations with her father so much that when she came, time to go out, oh, can we wait for five minutes? I'm just finishing this with her father and so on. You You know, First lesson of Object A, cause of uh, uh, desire. How uh, usually what triggers, there is even a a technical term called endearing foibles, I think. How, you know how you fall in love? Always, it's almost a rule, I was told. It holds for me, I don't know, now you will again come with your husband for whom it's different or whatever. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But uh, that. Okay, you are attracted. Sorry, from the male Chauvinist perspective, by a guy. Freudian But then, to fall in love, you always have to have the experience of a small. How do you call it? Failure. They call it endearing. Fo- like you, you say, oh, "Okay, her teeth are not perfect." Or put whatever you want, want and then you say, but nonetheless I love her. You know what I mean? You think these teeth or whatever it can be is just an obstacle, but it has to be there. Sorry.
1: There's also that similar paradigm in all the kind of Hollywood screwball comedies of the man who's just interested in seducing the woman but then inevitably actually ends up liking her as a person.
0: Yeah, but oh, here the things get complicated. Did you read Stanley Cavell? that, uh, I don't know what's the title of the book, it's wonderful one, he goes even further, comedies of remarriage. Precisely, at this level, his idea is that to get a proper, authentic marriage, it must be the second one. Because first you marry because you just like the girl. Then you have to discover the weakness you divorce, and then you marry again. So what's
1: that film with Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda where that happens where they actually have to fall in love with each other twice? First they marry I forgot which one, and it's for it's on one reason, because I, I, did, on I don't like Barbara she, Stanwyck, but that's another problem, yeah? yeah.
0: You hate but her. You hate you? her is too much, you know. I, uh, <laughs> I just. Uh, I have problems with stars like Barbara Stanwyck and Catherine Hepburn. No, it's much more vulgar. I'm so embarrassed to say it. I don't find them sexually attractive. I'm so vulgar here, I'm so sorry, you know. But you know what? Now I will tell you a politically totally incorrect thing. It ended bad for me in the United States. Once we were debating this point, you know, people uh, attacked me for not being historicist enough, and then challenged me. Okay, everything is culturally relative. Tell us one feature which is absolutely universal, no? Oh my God, you don't do this, what I did in the United States. I said, uh, okay, what I know is absolutely universal. You put a man in front of a woman. It doesn't matter what type of woman, what type of man, always, for the split of the second, the first reaction of men is, would I do it or not with her, you know? And I claim, this is absolutely universal, but then a wonderful thing happened in England. They have more sense of fun. A lady told me, "But we are the same, and you are. Are you interested in what was my reaction to you? whatever? No, but sorry. Okay, let's go more seriously. Uh, 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 let's go back to where we began. Yes. So, what does? Okay, let me now let's conclude with a theoretical point here. Object A and melancholy. We said. Object A, oh my God, there is so much, let me go a little bit on serious theory to do here. You know what's one of the names or versions of Object A? You know how if it is authentic love, you refer to what in French they usually call je ne sais quoi, that something in you, I don't know what it is, but some ex which. And this need not to be only the point of Uh, attraction, even with uh, hatred and so on, which is why when I analyze anti-Semitism, I always pointed out that if you say Jews are, and let's make the list of, of course, dirty anti-Semitism, Jews are dirty, corrupted, whatever, if you claim this, you are not yet a true anti-Semite. To be a true anti-Semite, you have to turn this around and to say, they are corrupted, dirty, blah, blah, because they are Jews. And then you ask, but what is this? And then you say, ah, it's that mysterious X, the ingredient in being a Jew, and so on. This would be, again, another version of Object A. Uh, uh, How, how, uh, now we can go a little bit more into theory, because how does this work? (laughs) with, because you asked me this yesterday, subject, master, signifier, and all that. Let me repeat some old stuff to conclude, I'm sorry if you know it, but it makes the link very nice. How? There is no object A without this, as it were, imbalance, disorder, structural inconsistency of the symbolic order. Uh, My classic example, sorry if you know it. Take the movie Joss. You saw it, the boring, but maybe not so bad, Spielberg. My favorite Spielberg is Empire of the Sun, interesting. I like the novel very much. Okay, let's go back. Uh, Ask yourself a question. What does the figure of the shark stand for? You know that? When the movie was out, I remember all stupid social theories, like some people claimed it's American racism, the shark stands for ecology or threat of the third world immigrants then you had opposite readings like fidel castro interestingly he liked shark he said it's clear that the shark is the big capital exploiting. okay what's my point here my point is that no ideology doesn't work like that it's a wrong question to insist on but what does the shark really stand for the point is this one imagine an everyday person. You are afraid of many inconsistent things, you know. You are afraid of ecological things. You are afraid of pain. You are afraid of immigrants. But you are afraid of state, of big capital banks exploiting you. And you have all these inconsistent fears. And what the figure of the shark does is it kind of a magically stands in for all these fears. You, as it were, symbol- In this sense, it is, for Lacan, an empty signifier. Not that it means nothing, but it doesn't have a content of its own because it really stands for all that inconsistent best. And I claim, that's my point, of course, it's exactly the same for antisemitism. Imagine an ordinary guy in Germany in 1920s. You had many fears you were this modern small bourgeois. So, you were afraid of bankers, of course, inflation crisis. You were, if you were a moralist, afraid of sexual moral depravity. You were afraid of this on debt, uh, decay and so on. And then Hitler comes, okay, not only Hitler, it was the tradition, and tells you the Jew, and the Jew stands for all of them. Approve, analyze a little bit the figure of Jew in anti-Semitism, of course, not reality, anti-Semitic figure. And did you notice the inconsistency of this figure? Jews are at the same time lazy, in the sense of just exploiting us, Gentiles, we have to work. But at the same time, it's part of anti-Semitism, this idea, of course Jews win, they're better students, because they don't even know how to properly enjoy, they just study work all the time. Or, Jews are hyper-intellectual, at the same time, they are dirty, seducing our girls and all that, and so on and so on, you know. So, this is a clear case of how anti-Semitism works. You take all the signifiers of this different things that bother you, and you introduce false consistency by this one term which, as it were, stands for them all. But, uh, which is the logic here? Sorry, maybe you know it from my books. If I repeat an, another old joke, which I really like, from Poland, an anti-communist joke, which I love. Maybe you know it. The joke is that uh, you know how you have to know this how. When communists were in power, they liked to boast how socialism is the highest stage of humanity. It's the synthesis of all the greatest achievements. It's to be evil, like, but you still love a few bacteria, you, not <laughs> like. It's the synthesis of all past and so on. So the joke, Polish one, goes on like this. Socialism is the synthesis bringing together of all the greatest achievements of humanity. From primitive societies, it took primitive brutality. From ancient societies, socialism took slavery. From medieval societies, it took uh, brutal domination. From capitalism, it took uh, exploitation, and now comes the beauty. From socialism, it took the name. <laughs> and it's exactly the same for antisemitism. You see, for example, from bankers, it took the antisemitic figure of the to From bankers, it took uh, uh, the... Uh, these financial speculations, from ordinary <coughs> drunken people, it took this vulgar seduction and so on, whatever. And from the Jews it took it took the name. No? Uh, uh, which is why, incidentally, this is my classic line, maybe you know it, but it's worth repeating. This is how master signifier works. Which is why, if you want to debate ideology, precisely anti Semitism, but it's the same with other racisms, be aware that the moment you accept debate at the level of reality, in the sense of, but are Jews really like that? You You shouldn't do this. For example, let's say I debate with the, in the 30s in Germany with an anti-Semitic Nazi member, and I tell him, but listen, your idea of a Jew is wrong. Jews are not really like that. The moment you do this, you've sold your soul to the devil. Why? Because the result will always be somewhere in between. Let's go through it. Jews are seducing our German girls. Well, I hope they did. Some of them definitely did. Why not? You know what I mean? Or Jews were exploiting Germans. Of course they were. It's a fact. Some of them were rich and so on. But that's not the point, you see. It's a totally wrong line. The true question is not, are Jews like that? The true question is, why did the Nazis' ideology, why did they need the figure of the Jew to maintain their identity, as it were, for their whole universe to function? It's not the question of reality, are they like that? Uh, uh, Do you mean that that sort of regime is automatically self-destructive? Which are, it is self-destructive, but everybody knows it. in the sense that uh, if you take away from Nazism, the figure of the Jew, it falls apart, and so on. Yes, it's totally dependent on, which is why, in this sense, Jews are object A for Nazis, which is why you can empirically verify it. You have this strange logic of the more the Nazis killed the Jews, the more threatening that remainder was. You know, it's... Not, uh, but what I want to say is that another thing that Lacan showed me the way immediately, mm-hmm. sorry, uh, when he said something wonderful, and this is the parallel I want to draw, when he said, imagine a jealous husband, sorry again for maybe showing this twist, jealous husband who is obsessed with the idea that <coughs> his wife is screwing around with other men All And Lacan says something, he, he, he says, even if his suspicions are totally true, his wife is, sleeping around with other men all the time, his jealousy is still pathological. Because what makes it pathological is not is it true or not, but again, the structural role it plays. Why would the loss of jealousy ruin his entire personal identity and so on and so on? But what I want to say is that when you make this replacement, replacement in the sense of instead of all this like Banker here, lawyer here, because we're also supposed to be dirty lawyers who treat you. Lawyer here, banker here, rapist here, whatever, avant-garde artist there. And instead of fearing all of them, you focus on. Like, behind all of them is the Jew. But here, to make it work, you need object A. Where? Because then you have to presuppose... That X, what are the Jews? We don't know some mysterious X which which makes them Jews, you know. Sorry, but, okay.
1: I have a very nasty question. What you just described, doesn't it sound like Badiou's generic set? Mm -hmm. Doesn't it? Uh,
0: Absolutely, and here you touched a very... A generic set... Even with the indiscernible, you know? This little (laughs) X that doesn't... Yes, and no, again, what I already mentioned, remember, my point is that this would have hold for early Badiou, where he does claim that he defines event as something, as I already said, which, as it were, includes his own name. name. no. But now he changed his, his position here. But yes, we debated a lot with Alain here, and I, you know what my problem with, I'm sorry we don't have time with, his generic, he has four how do you call it, generic procedures, procedures whatever, <laughs> no? Science, art, uh, which is then okay, okay, is the, the last politics one? Out. Sorry? Politics, love. Politics, love, yes. I claim love is his symptomal point, in the sense that, you know, it's my old joke about Marx, critical of Marx, that Marx has a certain categorization of modes of production, you know? Uh, primitive tribal societies, Asiatic mode of production, uh, uh, feudalism, capitalism, and then whatever shit will there be, socialism, whatever. Okay, so, but it's clear that Marx is cheating. In what sense? The true set is composed only of tribal, primitive societies, slavery, feudalism, capitalism. Then Marx was honest enough to admit that there are some modes of production which don't fit any of this. (coughs) And he invented Asiatic mode of production, which, is it clear? Any good anthropologist historian knows. Marx threw into that, from ancient China to India, to Latin, sorry, Latin American, I mean empires, to Egypt. The true meaning of Asiatic mode of production is all the modes that don't fit the other. You know, it's just, it's like, you remember Michel Foucault, everybody uh, knows this, quotes at the beginning of his uh, uh, Le Moi et Le Chauce, that famous Borges uh, uh, qualification of dogs where one of the elements are uh, bl- brown dogs, dogs owned by the emperor, these dogs, and then all the dogs which are not included into this list, you know. It's a kind of a negative container. It appears to be one element in the set but it's really a stand-in within the set for what is excluded from the set. And here, yes, here is a link with but Badiou. Because what he mentions as this, he oscillates. Sometimes his term is the, the symptomal knot or, you know, this surnumerary element. Element which is an element of a set, but without a proper place within the set. And uh, what uh, what I am saying here, here things are more complex, we can go into it in the afternoon, is that the whole problem is here, but you is right, that this set, which is internal to a system, but without proper place in the system, that this set stands for universality. And it's a very nice logic which says that precisely the numerary excess Stands for universality, and here, but you, here, means he's close to Rancière. The best book by Rancière, I think, is still La Messe How did they translate? Disagreement. Understand? disagreement. Disagreement. Yeah, yeah. For me, this is too gentlemanly, like uh, two British guys debating disagree. <laughs> because there, he says the same. He is wonder He says that when does democracy begin? Not when in in, for example, in French Revolution. Not when the third estate says, we also want our role. No, when the third estate says, you, first, second estate, noblemen, clergy, you stand only for you, we are the people. Precisely, we as those excluded, you see the point. It's not this liberal inclusion, oh, we also want our role. It's a much more arrogant position. They claimed, we stand for universality. But,
1: fuck it, the lady will kill me. Let's go on uh, in the afternoon, right? Okay.